Okay, you guys. If you want to find a seat, we're going to go ahead and get started. Anybody else fighting a cold right now? Who's, who's got the crud going on? Our, our whole control room back there was like coughing and sneezing and blowing our nose. It's terrible. So sorry, I sound like a, a troll right now. So in the days of the early church, most people spoke Greek. Even if they like spoke Aramaic or some other languages, their main language, they, they learned Greek too. And so as the early church began to write things down, like their rites and ceremonies, and documents and creeds, they were written and usually performed in Greek. And the Greeks had this word that they used to describe the way that God interacted with people and places and things. And the word was mysterion. Say that with me, say mysterion. Yeah, so this is obviously where we get our word mystery from. But in Greek, it had this element always of the spiritual. So literally, this word, mysterion, meant sacred mystery. It's what they called it when some enigmatic phenomenon revealed sort of, you might say, the hidden dimensions of life. Last week, we talked about how in our time, we sort of do the opposite. You know, we have cameras everywhere. We poke and prod and test and measure everything till all the mysteries almost just drained out of the entire world, which is not a bad impulse to try to understand the world in which we live. But it's almost like in attending to measurable realities, we've almost lost the ability to attend to immeasurable realities, like those just those aspects of life that are real and undeniably happening, part of the human experience, but they don't register on our instruments and measurements and cameras. And and the effect of all this is that we live in a time in which um, people just sort of assume if a thing can't be measured and observed, it doesn't really exist. And God is seen as one of those things sort of a superstition that's been debunked by science or for lack of evidence. But in the ancient world, it wasn't that way. Like, most of life was still a big mystery to them. They had um, kind of a healthy humility about their explanatory powers. And they tended to value things that provoked questions instead of providing answers. When some mystery occurred and they had no explanation, they got excited. They, they didn't ignore it and explain it away. They held those things with great reverence, precisely because they seemed to be pointing to these hidden dimensions of life. They were held as sometimes even sacred, these mysteries. They called those things mysterion, sacred mysteries, visible signs of um, invisible and mysterious realities. The early church saw Christ as a mysterion, a sacred mystery. They had watched his actions. They would followed his teaching. Then they saw him crucified and died and buried and then resurrected. And they had no explanation for how this could happen, but it did happen to them. And so they called it a mysterion, a sacred mystery, not intended so much to be understood Um, as to be experienced. 
you know? And there was a difference. Like, not to be just analyzed and, and probed and parsed and, and iterated and approved, but to be lived. And Jesus had promised them that this, this new age of the Spirit was coming. I mean, anytime two or three people who were living in Christ's name would, would gather together, um, the mysterion of God, the sacred mystery of how God kept showing up in the world, it would happen again. The invisible God would become visible in human communities in ways that defied explanation. They couldn't explain, but were no less real. And as they worshiped together, God was present with them in a way that was different when they were, you know, off on their own. Exactly how that worked was a total mystery to them, but that was their experience. They called it a mysterion. As they received communion, God seemed present to them in the bread and the wine. How that could be, they just couldn't say. So they just called it mysterion. Anytime the invisible God, the Spirit of God, became evident or embodied in some human reality, Greek-speaking Christians named it mysterion, a sacred mystery. And then over the next two or three hundred years, Rome became more dominant in that part of the world. People stopped speaking Greek and they started speaking Latin, which presented um, a problem for the people of God because there was no word in Latin that meant the same thing as mysterion. There was no cognate. As they, as they translated the ceremonies and documents of the, the church into Latin, there was just no Latin word that worked in place of mysterion. At first, they tried just spelling it out with Latin letters. That's where we get the word mysterium. Um, but nobody knew what that word meant, so it was like, why are we even doing this? And eventually, the scholars and priests began to substitute a different Latin word. Um, and the word is sacramentum. Say sacramentum. Sacramentum. Famous guys like Tertullian, one of the all-time great names. I'm just waiting on somebody to name their child Tertullian. That would be, that would be fantastic. Tertullian or Jerome, um, who translated the Bible into Latin, into the common tongue. Um, th these guys used the word sacramentum to name this the experience of a sacred mystery. And this word has kind of an interesting history. The Romans, you know, they were famous for many things, but um, maybe mostly for their army. They had the most powerful army of their day. And when um, a man became a centurion, a soldier in the Roman army, there was a ceremony that they performed. The first part was the oath of office. It was just kind of a typical thing where they promised to be faithful to the army and fulfill certain duties. The second part um, was that his fellow soldiers would brand him with a red-hot iron right behind the ear with the number of his legion. He just burned the number of his unit into, into the skin on the back of his neck. This mark was the, the outward sign of an inward promise, this inner commitment um, to the army that was signified by this outward, outer branding. And this whole ceremony was called the sacramentum. And the early church began to borrow this, this word, sacramentum, instead of mysterion, to describe these sacred mysteries. Anytime God showed up in a visible way, this invisible God, in, in, in a visible way, they, they called it a sacramentum. It's, it's where we get our word sacrament. And it had to do with this um, manifestation of inner 
and outer worlds of meanings or inner and outer realities. And anytime created things or material, visible things became channels and symbols of God's activity and presence in the world, they called it sacramentum. And in our day, we, we actually have this kind of an Orthodox Christian doctrine called the sacramentality of all of life. It just means that, that almost anything can be a sacrament, a, a sunset, a song, a place, a moment. Almost anything be, can become a conduit of the divine. And over the years, the church has attached this word, sacrament, um, to ceremonies and rites of the, of the church, things like baptism and communion. Um, they were called sacraments because when the church did those things, God kept showing up and transforming people in the process. But it can refer to almost, almost anything. In the sacrament of baptism that Jesus partook in in our text for today, the symbol is water. That's the physical thing. Water, of course, is, you know, elemental to human life. 60% of the human body is made up of water. 70% of the earth's surface is water. You can survive three or four weeks without food, but only three or four days without water. It's that essential. In places like Johnson County, Kansas, you know, water's plentiful. We turn on the faucet and clean water comes out. We take 20-minute showers. I mean, I take 20-minute showers. Like men take 20-minute showers. Um, the, the, but the water, water's everywhere. We water the grass anytime we want, for heaven's sake. But just a few hours west of here, in western Kansas, water is, is precious, it's scarce. Um, in places like India, Egypt, Libya, Somalia, even major cities like Cape Town, Mexico City, Cairo, Sao Paulo, Beijing, they have serious water shortages. Parts of Southern California and Arizona and New Mexico, um, you can't fill their swimming pools right now or water your grass. In fact, I read this week that some places, their zoning laws don't even allow the approval of building a swimming pool right now. They need every drop of water for drinking and agriculture. Many U.S. cities actually have crumbling water infrastructure Flint, Michigan's like the famous example, but there are many other places, Jackson, Mississippi, Buffalo, New York, places like that, where they built 75-year water systems somewhere around 120 years ago. And the bill's coming due, right? So the water, anytime a water system breaks down, everything comes to a grinding halt. And this is what it was like in the ancient world. Procuring a safe water, drinking water supply was the public issue. All ancient cultures organized their entire lives around sources of water. The greatest civilization in the ancient world was Egypt. Herodotus, the, the 6th century BC philosopher, wrote that Egypt was the gift of the Nile. Nearly the entire population of Egypt lived within a few miles of the Nile. If it weren't for the Nile, Egypt, it said, would be known as the Sahara Desert. Many of the Egyptian gods then were river gods because the source of water was the source of life. If you think about American history, the settling of America, the American frontier bounced from river to river. 
first settlements were mostly in New England around the, the Charles River. And the next river west was the Connecticut River. It's the, it's the one that runs between Vermont and New Hampshire, and you can never remember which one's Vermont and which one's New Hampshire, you know? It's the one that goes in, in between there. That, that's the Connecticut, and it was the edge of the frontier. And then they settled around that river, and it moved to the Hudson by New York City. And then that was the frontier, and then they moved to settle around that, and then it was the Delaware, then the Susquehanna, then the Potomac, and then the Ohio, then the Mississippi, the Missouri, the Platte Rivers, um, Lewis and Clark followed um, the Missouri River. The Oregon Trail and Santa Fe Trails largely followed rivers. I mean, to this day, almost every major U.S. city that isn't on a coast is on a river. Kansas City is here because of the Kansas and Missouri rivers. Same thing was true in the ancient world, too. This is how they settled. Among ancient peoples, they just they followed the water, you know. Israel was different. They were different in many ways, but in the land of Israel was different in this one major way. And that was the fact that Israel was not sustained by a river. Israel was sustained by the rains. You know, you can, as a people, you can chart Israel's movement as this journey back and forth between rivers and rains. Remember, God told Abram to leave behind the land of his fathers, a place called Ur of the Chaldeans on the banks of the Euphrates. And he left the land of rivers and river gods and moved to a land sustained by rains, the land of Canaan. Land sustained by rains, you know, they were more vulnerable and precarious. Rivers kind of always ran. They were self-sustaining. Rains were capricious. They they were swayed by the whims of the gods, or if you're in Abraham's family, by this wild god of Abraham. And so for the Hebrew people, water was a sacramentum. It was a channel, a symbol of God's activity and promises. When, Ab- when Jacob fled to Egypt with his family, he was driven by a drought. And there they flourished on the banks of the Nile until God called Moses to lead them away from the Nile into the wilderness of Sinai. Of course, what makes the wilderness the wilderness more than anything else is a lack of water. They they had no choice. I mean, any, any other place in that part of the world that had enough water to sustain life had been settled thousands of years before. And wars fought to obtain it, to possess it. And you, you can actually track the wilderness wanderings through the 40 years of the people of God from one water source to another. That's what they mean. You can see this in the scriptures. Hosea 6.3 says, Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His coming forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the showers, like the spring rains that water the earth. The rains to the Hebrew people were like a sacrament. When the rains came, it was the Lord coming forth as water. Spring showers watering the earth. Rains were seen as the hand of God sustaining Israel for another year. A channel or a symbol of God's mysterious presence and activity. They were, they were a sacramentum. 
Since water was so top of mind always for them, this constant pressing issue, the Israelites tracked their journeys um, and their relationship to Yahweh in part through their access and relationship to water. God called them out of Babylon and Egypt, cultures sustained by rivers, away from the river gods to the promised land, a land dependent not on rivers but on rains, in other words, upon Yahweh who will come to us like the showers, like the spring rains. In fact, the Hebrew word for water is mayim. The Hebrew word for the heavens is shamayim, the source of the waters. In ancient Israel, the source of the waters, mayim, was the heavens, shamayim, the dwelling place of their God. Two of the biggest moments in the life of Israel's history Um, where when God first constituted Israel, calling Abraham away from Ur, and when God reconstituted Israel, calling Moses out of Egypt. Both times God was calling them away from river cultures to lands that were sustained by rains. Water from Shamayim, from the heavens, from the Lord, who will sustain them. Water just shows up over and over at these crucial moments in the story of God, like creation, the spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters, Mayim, in the Exodus as the children of Israel are baptized, almost passing through the waters of the Red Sea. Then again, after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years from watering hole to watering hole to well to well, then they crossed on dry land, another parting of the Jordan River to go into the promised land where they would always be dependent upon God for their survival. Over and over, God used water in the story as a sacrament, always to call God's people to this place of just utter dependence upon God for their survival and for the water that would sustain their lives. And I tell this overly long narrative just to help us see that when Jesus climbs down into the water of the Jordan, he's tapping into this rich, symbolic history of his people. This old, old story reaches all the way back to Abraham, where God uses water as a sacrament, a mysterium, a sacramentum, reminding them that they're dependent upon God as the source of life. And that what it means to be the people of God is is to agree there is no other source. And that's kind of the rich symbolic world that stands behind our text for today. All through the story of God, these moments where God would lead people to some kind of through water to a deeper knowledge of God or themselves or, or dependence on God. Water was often at the center of these moments. When Jesus was born, the scripture notes, he was born of water, through the waters, the amniotic fluids. He lived in utter dependency on the rains in the land of Israel, just like everyone else. And then at the start of his ministry, he chose to pass through the waters of baptism, signifying that the path he was choosing to walk was a path of utter dependence on God. We're told that John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's loaded. That's a loaded sentence. John is, of course, Jesus' cousin, and he was leading a protest movement 
against the Jewish elites of the day who had corrupted Israel's faith. The Sadducees especially were, were getting just filthy rich off the temple. They, they made like modern-day televangelists look like amateurs. They had this just really lucrative alliance with Rome, who was at the same time oppressing their, the Jewish people. They were basically selling out their own people to get rich, as Rome just squeezed every drop of wealth from the working class, um, taxing them to the hilt, repossessing their ancestral lands, returning many of them to a state of bondage not unlike the way it was back in Egypt. And John's movement was, it was a protest against that whole situation. And it was located, interestingly, in the wilderness. Now, every Jewish person in Jesus' day knew that if you wanted to be near God, the place you go is to the temple in Jerusalem, where God's spirit dwelled in this room called the Holy of Holies which was essentially a room inside a room inside a room inside a private court inside a public court perched on top of uh, a temple, massive temple complex. And, and the Holy of Holies was at the center of that. It was, just, it was a perfect cube, 30 by 30 by 30 feet, that housed the Ark of the Covenant where God's spirit was thought to dwell. But of course, in Jesus' day, after the exile, the ark was long gone. And so what they did in this, this 30 by 30 cube was they raised this little part of the floor about the size of the, what the ark would have been to indicate where the ark once stood. And then they covered the doorway, two thick curtains, and it sat in total darkness, 24-7, 364 days a year. And there's a sense in which the darkness was a sacramentum, a symbol of the mysterious presence of God. But, but mostly, they just did this out of fear. They become so afraid to approach God. They shut God behind a curtain in the dark. Only one day a year on Yom Kippur, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of atonement on the mercy seat, or since the ark was gone, sprinkled it on the raised floor where the ark should have been. It's actually kind of sad. But it was thought to be so dangerous to be in God's presence that the priest wore bells on his robe, the high priest, and had a rope tied around his ankle. The other end was outside the room, and they knew that if the bells got quiet, that meant God had struck him dead, and so they'd just pull him out with the rope, and it was like, next priest up, I guess, or something. <laughs> they were so afraid of God. They closed God off in this perfect square, in perfect darkness, with a sense of mystery, to be sure but also like a deep estrangement, you know, and fear. It built up all these layers of separation, constituting this progression of holiness, the holy of holies with this raised place on the floor where the Spirit of God used to be. Only the high priest could go there, and then only once a year, and outside that then was the sanctuary with a table for bread and a menorah and an altar for burning incense. And then outside that was the naos, where only ritually clean Jewish males could enter, no women, no Gentiles. 
Then outside that, the temple courts where women and Gentiles could go. And outside that, the holy city of Jerusalem. And then outside of that, the holy land of Israel. They had all these layers built up between humanity and God. The holy of holies, the sanctuary, the naos, the temple courts, the holy city, the holy land. Layers of protection. Standing between humanity and the mysterium sacramentum the mysterious presence of God. And outside of all of that was the wilderness, which wasn't very holy at all. The wilderness was a place of struggle and testing and pain, a place of hunger where there was no sowing or reaping. You survive on what you can scavenge. That's why John the Baptist ate locusts and wild honey. There's very little water in the wilderness. It's a place of danger and vulnerability. It's kind of the last place you'd expect God to show up. And yet over and over in Israel's story, God would come find his people in the wilderness. And the one thing you know, and the one thing all, in all the different stories, one thing you knew is if God showed up in the wilderness, there would be zero layers of protection between you and God. And so maybe it makes sense. First time we see Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, he's not in the Holy of Holies, the temple courts, he's not in the holy city and not technically even in the holy land. He's out in the wilderness in a line of sinners standing at the edge of the waters, the Jordan River, ready to receive a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we're told the people of Jerusalem and all of Judea were going out to, to John and to the region along the Jordan. That means the wilderness. Even the Pharisees and Sadducees had to trek out into the wilderness to check up on John, although they had suspect motives. And there's this huge tension in the story that, that if we don't know the whole long history, we're kind of likely to miss. Like, why? Why has Jesus come out into the wilderness way out here? Why didn't he go to Jerusalem in the temple? And, and the, at least part of the reason is his baptism is a sacramentum. It's this brand new experience of the sacred mystery. It's being revealed in Christ. A new aspect of it, never really seen quite so clearly before out there in the wilderness. A new in, interpretation of the old Jewish story, a new revelation that God was never meant to be contained behind some curtain in a temple with layers of protection, that God's rightful place was down in the fray with God's people, immersed and imminent in their everyday lives like water to sustain them, living among them in every heart, in the spaces between them, embodied in their struggles holding them close, living through them out into the world to make all things new. When the children of uh, God um, isolated God in the temple, in essence, they isolated themselves from the source of life. They're like teenagers, you know? They argued every point. Anybody living that reality right now? 
they locked themselves in their room and, and chose bad friendships and made bad choices and, and they chose behaviors that diminished their full humanity. And of course, they were embarrassed and ashamed and couldn't admit it, so they further blamed and hid from God. And pretty soon, the father could only get in one-word answers from them and they wouldn't talk to him or to each other unless they were blaming and hurting each other. And everyone retreated to their own lonely corner and they built layers of protection against God, against themselves, and each other in the world. And of course, all of this is breaking the Father's heart. And they tried all kinds of things to reconcile, God did. But the children, you know, they chose their own isolation. And eventually they boxed God in this 30 by 30 by 30 cube in the dark. And instead of carrying the Father's name to the world, they locked him away and said, essentially, if we can't have you, nobody can have you. And they kind of lost their way, their ability to see ahead, to, to know what time it was, to know even who they were truly meant to be. And they lost this life-sustaining connection to God and to self and other in the world. And they were estranged until, until one day the father had another child, a last son, an afterthought. These were big in the story of God. An afterthought, a last son like Jacob, like Joseph, like David. The father gave this child special insight into human nature and purpose. And sent the child on, on a peacemaking mission to his siblings, like Jacob, like Joseph, like David. And so when Jesus showed up on the banks of the Jordan, he's the faithful son. He's the human as human was intended to be, fulfilling all righteousness. But instead of like condemning his siblings, screaming at him and, you know, making him feel guilty, he's climbed down in the river with them. That's the move. He climbed down in the river with them. It's really quite beautiful. And when coming up out of the water, we're told a spirit, the spirit descended from heaven like a dove, and this voice said, you're my son, whom I dearly love, and you I find happiness. This is what we want to hear from God. Again, this scene is, is sacramentum. It's a sacred mystery. There's, there's more going on than, than meets the eye. It's interesting. Scholars tell us that in Jesus' day, if, the, if some rabbi had kind of a new or novel teaching on Scripture, some new Torah, Torah means teaching, all it took for that teaching to be legitimate was for two rabbis to lay their hands on him. They would stand on either side as he taught, as if to say, you, you, we ratify this. Like, you can, you can embrace this is a good teaching. And many scholars read this baptism. Uh, they say this is how it, it functions in, in the Gospels. Two rabbis endorse Jesus' ministry, his teaching, his Torah here in the river. The first is John the Baptist who's baptizing. The second is this dove, the Spirit of God, and the voice from heaven saying, You're my son whom I dearly love, and you I find happiness. 
it was like a river of blessing that would sustain Christ through the challenges of his ministry. The very next thing that happens is the Spirit then drives him, compels him further out into the wilderness where he's tested for 40 days. Mark's very quiet about it. But from, uh, from the other Gospels, we know that point of this whole testing was just to make sure Christ knew who was sustaining him. Not the kingdoms of the world, not the rulers of the world, not bread alone, not the Nile, not even the promised land, not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of God. This testing was to make sure Christ would trust in no other source other than the imminent presence of God that's everywhere and always. And I think that Christ's actions here present a question to us. And it's more than, than just, have you ever been baptized? It's, it's deeper than that. I think it's, it's asking us to consider, well, what, do, what do we trust as the source of life? The source of our strength. And I think, it, in a sense, when you put it in its whole context, it, it asks us, have we isolated ourselves from the source of life? Have we made it so God you know, can't touch us? We have layers of protection in between. Have we isolated ourselves from ourselves, each other, the world? Put God in a box, put each other in a box at a safe distance? Or who, have we joined Christ in the river, in the waters that sustain us, that wash us? The waters of the wilderness and the waters of baptism. Are we, are we trying, however imperfectly, to live our lives as an expression of our dependence upon God? Not in some like slavish, like, I don't know, diminishing way, but with joy, just like children. During the season of Lent, we agree to join Christ in the wilderness every year for 40 days. That's how long Lent lasts, seven weeks, excepting Sundays. We go through our own version of testing through these little Lenten fasts. How many of you gave up something for Lent this year? Excellent. How many of you have already messed up what you gave up for Lent this year? Almost the same number of hands. That's excellent. <laughs> These are my people. <laughs> the reason we do this is we kind of, we learn to just let go of the little crutches that really serve as barriers between God and us. And, and the little crutches that let us prop ourselves up and not feel so vulnerable. 40 days, we, we do these little fasts to just remind ourselves um, that it's actually possible to draw our strength in just our ordinary everydays, as ordinary everyday people, to draw our strength from God, the God who's always with us, the God who's, whose primary identity is love, whose act, whose way of being is always just to love, embrace all the broken things. We can draw on God. God will sustain us like water in the wilderness. 
And all it takes is really just to climb down in the water with Jesus and just embrace. Like, God, you gotta, I don't know what you do to keep this whole thing going, but you keep doing it. Not in a somber way. Again, it's not depressing or boring. We're just really supposed to be a sense of adventure. I, I really think Lent should be kind of an adventure in, ooh, this is going to be interesting. Whatever happens to me when I stop eating chocolate, I don't know. But I know God will always keep me. At least if God's not stuck behind a curtain somewhere in a room in the dark. It's not where God belongs. God belongs on the loose in the world. God's rightful place is down in the fray with God's people, with you, with us, on whatever adventure we're hunting, immersed and imminent in our everyday lives like water sustaining us. In a moment, we're going to receive communion. And as we do, um, I have these two cups up here on this side and that side filled with water. And don't feel like you have to do this, but we do this every, every year or so. Just provide a time when you can remember your own baptism. And the way we do it is after you receive communion, you can just come up and just dip your finger in. It's very Catholic, so if you have Catholic trauma, sorry. But um, <laughs> it's, you just dip your finger in the water and make the sign of the cross over you just to remember your own baptism. And um, we can just line up after you have communion, whoever wants to do that. Don't feel any pressure, but if you want to remember your baptism and kind of mark yourself again with the water, just dip your finger in and make the sign of the cross. If you would um, just stand with me and let's pray for a moment. God, we ask you to look down upon us um, as we head into this season of Lent this year, as we make our preparation in the wilderness. Um, to receive Christ the King um, on Easter Sunday. And I pray that you would watch over us in the wilderness and that you would connect us to you and each other, to our own souls and this world you've made, that you would sustain us like water for our souls. Amen. We're going to receive communion now. And um, the way that we re receive communion, we just, we're released row by row. And um, you can come up and find a station, and, and they'll offer you a plate of bread and a cup. You just take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and receive it. As you do, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And um, you can say, I will remember, or however you respond, however you feel comfortable. The reason we do this is that on Christ's last night with his disciples, he did this. He had them share the same loaf and cup, and, and he said, this is going to be a symbol, a mysterium, right? Uh, a sacramentum. And what's happening is we're, we're just reminding ourselves that to receive Christ into our life. He said, Can feast on my life and, and be made out of the stuff I'm made out of, and then go out and be um, the image of God, the hands and feet of Christ. And um, he said, whenever you gather, do this. So that's why we receive communion. And that's also why we don't have any barriers. Anybody who calls on the name of Christ can join us at the table. Um, but first, if you would pray with me, and let's pray a blessing on, the, on this feast. 
Oh God, we do pray um, that you would bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Would you come and live inside us, make us new from the inside out, and then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore.